1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Arnab Datta Roy, an assistant professor of world literature and postcolonial theory at Florida Gulf Coast University. Today, my guest is Dr. Alexa Weich von Mosner who will be speaking about her fascinating book Affective Ecologies, Empathy, Emotion, and Environmental Narrative. Dr. Mosner is an Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Klagenfurt in Austria and is currently a visiting professor in Media and Cultural Studies at the University of Freiburg in Germany. Her research explores contemporary environmental culture from a cognitive, eco critical perspective and includes empirical reception studies. Among her most notable publications are the monographs Cosmopolitan Minds Literature, Emotion, and the Transnational Imagination, University of Texas Press 2014. And Affective Ecologies, Empathy, Emotion, and Environmental Narrative, which was published by the Ohio State University Press in 2017 and is the subject of our conversation today. Most recently, Alexa has co edited a book on empirical approaches to environmental narratives titled Empirical Eco Criticism Environmental Narratives for Social Change. University of Minnesota Press 2023, and she has also published her first novel, Fragile. Alexa, welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me.
1: Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So uh, our first uh, question to you would be, can you tell us a little bit about your academic journey? What inspires you to do what you do as a scholar, as a writer, and as a teacher?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I have a somewhat um, unusual journey as a scholar because I, I started out in a, well, I guess in a completely different discipline and then also, many years outside of academia. So my first degree is actually in in, in Germany and the, yeah. the name of it is in German is Wirtschaftsingenieurwesen, it's a very long word, which means basically it combines business administration and engineering and that had a focus on the like marketing and advertising. And that's kind of how I started out with my first degree. And from there, I got into television and then I worked for ten years in the German television industry as a production manager and as later as an assistant producer. And then I was a screenwriter for several years. So that's where I already started doing a lot of creative work. And only then did I actually go to the U.S. to do my graduate work at the University of California in um, in San Diego um, and got my my PhD in literature there, 2008, and. That somewhat unusual journey with this kind of detour into the media industry, that has been, I think, very important for where I then went as a scholar. So my my PhD, my dissertation was on cosmopolitanism and it does not yet use um, the kind of cognitive and embodied um, approach that has been very important for me in more recent years, but I already got interested in the work of the American philosopher Martha Nussbaum back then and her work on emotions. And she, you know, she brings in psychology. And so that interested me. And then after completing my dissertation, I really discovered a lot of work um, that had been around, but I discovered it at that point, um, you know, in cognitive literary studies and in cognitive film studies. And for me, it made a lot of sense to start engaging with that because it was a, it 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 seemed most helpful in answering the questions that i had my questions were a lot about psychological engagement like how what happens when we read a novel what happens when we watch a film what what how how does how do these texts involve us emotionally and what happens when we are done watching them you know why do some texts stay with us while others don't and um and i think the reason why i was so interested in that in that psychological side had to do that i used to be a screenwriter and i used to be on the production side and you know when you're working for television i was um i was head writer on a television series in germany then one of the most important question is, how do you keep your viewers engaged in your story, right? How how do you make them, you know, again and again, you know, following your stories, you know? um, And so that is, you don't necessarily, as a practitioner, you don't necessarily think about that from a, you know, highly theoretical point of view, but you certainly, you know, there are do's and don'ts and you learn from other people and you learn from experience. And so for me, when I started doing my theoretical work on all that as a stu- as a graduate student, I was mo- got more and more and more into that, right? And the, so I think really that's, that's a, a reason why I got into the work that I have been doing for the past 15 years or so that draws on, um, you know, psychology and cognitive science in looking and not, so you mentioned my first book was on cosmopolitanism. So that was really on transnational narratives um, and issues of, around race and gender and uh, ethnicity and post-coloniality. And so my more recent work is looking at environmental issues, but it's all kind of going back to that same deep seated interest that I have as a creative writer yeah so there is a connection there
0: thank you so much and it does make a lot of sense because your uh academic experience seems to be really interdisciplinary right like you have experience in the sciences then you've also experience in the film industry and 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 then you bring some of that experience to uh literary studies and 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 uh, and all that kind of informs, it feels like the interdisciplinary approach to, in your book, affective ecologies that brings in, brings together like the sciences, film studies, literature in, in, in rethinking like the environment uh, or, or how we like connect with the environment. So with that in mind, we can move to our next question. Um, tell us a little bit about your book, Affective Ecologies, and if you were to identify two major interventions of this book, what would they be?
1: Um, I guess, so one intervention that I, that I tried to make at the time was to introduce research in embodied cognition, um, but also, so that would be, you know, um, is in science and and philosophy, um, but also in in um, cognitive literary theory, um, cognitive uh, film theory. Um, which itself draws on cognitive science um, to to introduce that into eco criticism. Though I should say that I, I wasn't necessarily f- the first person to do that. Nancy Eastlin had um, done that before me. She she was actually um, the one who already in I want to say in two thousand ten around that time, Um, you know, she, she, she wrote the first piece on cognitive, she, 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 she called it cognitive eco-criticism. And she, at that time made that argument to say, eco-critics you know should should be more interested in what's happening in the human mind when they engage with literary texts with any cultural text um about the environment um because you know she pointed to that close connection that ecocriticism has always had to the natural sciences um, or to the sciences more generally and so 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 she made that that argument that there should be more research in that direction and then Erin james also published her book um at the story world accord it, you know earlier than my book i was actually even and she was um you know so kind to to share her the, the final version of her manuscript with me so i was able to read that um was very important to me too and i learned so much from from her work which itself draws on um cognitive neurotology, especially Susan Keen's work on empathy, um, and also Um, on contextual narratology to create something that uh, that Erin calls uh, in her book eco-narratology, which has really caught on, which is something that people refer to very often. So I wasn't necessarily the first person to do, to do that. Maybe what I did um, to a bit of a larger degree was directly drawing on empirical research, right? directly drawing on um, the cognitive science. Michael Caracciolo was another, um, another scholar whose work was really important for me at that time. He has done a lot of Work since uh, in 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 eco criticism his first book on the experientiality of narrative was not yet as um, focused on um, eco criticism specifically but it was very helpful to me because it also really deeply engages with uh, embodied cognition um, and and so there were influences but I also. I think I contributed to, to introducing that to the larger eco-critical debate. And the second um, intervention was um, a really explicit and sustained focus on emotion. I mean, that's obvious in the title of the book, I really wanted to dig deep into the um, emotion my first book had done that too with regard to to cosmopolitanism and there i was really interested in the affective ecology book i i wanted to know and to explore in that book you know, so how, when we read, when we read a text and we imagine that an, an environment what's, you know, usually referred to as a setting, but of course for eco-critics it's so much more than just a setting. Um, you know, how, how does that world, how does that story world, that, that environment, you know, how, how does it actually become alive in our minds? You know, how how does this actually work? What is it that it makes that possible? And the same thing when we watch a film, which is obviously um, um, different. So I think that focus on our emotional responses to an environment that we encounter in a narrative, but then also our empathetic responses to characters be they human or non-human. The non-human obviously is a big interest, again, for eco-critics in particular. Um, and then the third part of the book is interested in in you know, speculative fiction, you know, uh, utopian, dystopian. And I was also specifically interested in what kind of emotions these different types of speculative narratives cue in readers, invite in readers. So I think that's really the... the the second you know intervention i was trying to make at the time to kind of turn attention towards emotion from this um point of view of embodied cognition
0: thank you so much uh, uh that that's fascinating i do have a follow up question about like the merging of disciplines that you uh, have been talking about like cognitive science bringing in cognitive science uh, and 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 eco critical perspectives together right i mean uh, and, and 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 this might be a part of your answers to some of my later questions as well but i am interested in how, Uh, in in finding out about how does this merger happen, because as others, including Susan Keen, have pointed out, like, these disciplines have been suspicious of each other, right? I mean, like, especially, like, cognitive science uh, often finds, like, disciplines within the humanities uh like we're thinking of like post-colonial theory or like even eco-critical social justice like a little parochial in terms of their understanding of culture whereas the same happens the other way where like uh like humanistic disciplines often see cognitive science and their perspectives to be unthinkingly universalizing at times so how how do you address like these these kind of tensions in your work
1: yeah again when i do that i i in part follow the footstep uh, footsteps of other People who have done research um, in cognitive cultural studies more generally, Liza Sunshine, for example, has has made that argument in it, uh, the book is called Introduction to Cognitive Cultural Studies from 2010, in which she 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 makes that argument that what scholars who who are interested um, in cognitive cultural studies what they do is they try to combine you know this universalizing work um with more specifically you know historically and culturally situated work so it doesn't they i guess we they don't you know i don't consider this to be mutually exclusive right but that is often as you point out um often that is there's like a general suspicion that Uh, Scientists only care, in this case, uh, psychologists and neurologists, they only care about the human mind um, without being interested as like this uh, universalizing thing that all humans share. You know, it's, it's, it's the same in all humans and that they are totally blind to cultural, historical, important differences, which is something that, of course, humanities scholars, as you pointed out, you know, are very strongly interested in. Um, in my experience, while it, <laughs> it's certainly true that there are scientists who are not at all interested in the work of humanists, and there are humanists who are not at all interested in the work of scientists, it's not a general truth. Um, there is actually really interesting work, and that's in part the work I've been drawing on, in neuroscience by people like um vittorio Gallese, who has been very important for my working italian neuroscientist um jeffrey zacks also very important um uh, neuroscientists worked on film so there are uh neuroscientists and a lot of psychologists actually there's a whole field that's called the empirical study of literature. And most of the people working in that field are actually psychologists. And so they look at narrative from that point of view. And yes, you're right, they are they tend to be interested in more general explanations, things that are then true for like for all readers. Um, but I I think what we learn from that side, so from the scientific side, you know, has Really interesting implications when we look at the more culturally specific side. You know, that's that's what I meant earlier. We, it doesn't have to be one or the other because I think it is true. You know, as humans, we do have a brain. We all, you know, we do have brains. We do have bodies, and to some degree, they are very similar and they function in a in a very similar way. Actually, even with other mammals you know, uh, a lot of our bodies, of our brains function in se- at least in um, similar ways. And so I, I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, um, looking at that and looking um, at the fact that humans have, you know, a certain capacities for sensory capacities, um, um, capacities of mind. Um, but at the same time, you don't, you shouldn't be blind or you don't have to be, I think, blind. That for example, when we talk about emotion there, you know, there's a way in which emotions are processed in the amygdala, in the human brain, in the human body. Um, but at the same time, there's no question that emotions are also culturally produced. It depends on where you live um how you've grown up, in which cultural background you have grown up with what narratives you have grown up that will also have a strong influence emotions are also political as Sarah Ahmed and others have argued. So you know, I think that 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 for me is you know that it's indisputable. Um, I think the work can be really interesting when you look at at the intersection of these discourses. Um, but I guess that you have to be open-minded you know and not that the, the problem might be if you if there's a general suspicion, Um, then that might actually hinder such collaborations or, you know, such interdisciplinary work. Um, So I don't think it's healthy to be completely, you know, to be suspicious, but being critical is important. So, you know, I don't think um, we should we being in in this case now um literary scholars or film scholars you shouldn't just draw on work in the in the sciences uncritically because you know it must be true so i think that that is also our job to look at that kind of work in a critical way yeah.
0: thank you so much and that makes a lot of sense i mean i i i think uh a part of the novelty of your book is highlighting that there is a dialogue possible between these streams and these fields that have often been unwilling to speak to each other. And 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 a part of what your research, I mean, in the book and other aspects of your research has shown uh, is that like it's more productive if we see what is common between what these different fields are trying to do instead of focusing on how they disagree with each other. So so sa- thank you so much for that uh, clarifying that. So uh, let's focus on uh, the literary aspects of your book a little. So can you talk about what kind of literatures and films are you drawing attention to in your book? Are you looking at different genres? And also are you thinking about genres differently?
1: Oh, thank you. Um I I look at a variety of genres. My book is, is limited in its scope in the sense of that I'm an American studies scholar, so I look at American literature. Um but it is um rather encompassing in other ways because I look at Um, texts from the 19th century, though most of my texts are from the 20th and 21st century. um, I look at um, literature as well as film and to a small degree also at digital media, but it's mostly literature and film. But then I'm also interested in both fiction and nonfiction um, and also in different Types of literature, for example, and also in different types of film, because um, you know, some like John Muir. John Muir's the *Man's of California* is like a non, you know, non-fiction nature writing. And then um, another novel that I, or another book that I look at in my first chapter is um, Bonnie Nadzam's um, *Lamp*, which is a literary novel. Um, but I'm also interested in very popular texts. For example, um, Twister, you know, which is a disaster. It's a disaster action movie because I'm interested in. It's not even environmentally oriented, so I can't even say all the texts in my book that I look at are consciously environmental texts. Many of them are, but Twister and Bonds Twister probably really isn't. You know, that this is not an environmental film in that sense. But of course, because it's about. Um, tornadoes, it's uh, has a very active natural environment, literally, um, which is chasing people. And I, for example, I look at that film because I'm interested in how such a very active nature engages viewers emotionally. So, why is it so so thrilling? To watch a film about natural disaster, what exactly is happening in this case? For example, I draw on Vittorio Gales's work, um, who is one of the researchers who discovered the mirror neurons um, in, you know, first in in the brains of monkeys and then also in the brain of uh, of brains of humans, and who has done a lot of work in how mirror neurons are important in our capacity for empathy with others, but also for example, in our mirroring, in our understanding of motion. And that not only when we see other people move, and you know, which kind of is um he he his work is on what he calls embodied simulation. So the argument that he makes is or that he actually you know can can demonstrate based on empirical research, based on brain imaging is that um when you when you watch another person move, your brain is activated in similar way um, than when you would move your own body. That's why it's embodied simulation. And the interesting thing that I'm I'm drawing on when I work in my book on on twisters or on an action film is that this also happens when we are mirroring mapping on our onto our brains the movement of non-human entities. Yeah, such as, for example, a tornado. In this case, not even a real tornado. I, wait, this is a special effect tornado. And um, so, so I, I think it's a wide variety of American texts that I look at. But all of them, what they have in common is, you know, the environment and human nature relationships do play a big role. Whether or not they're consciously environmental or not is maybe a different question. But. It, it's foregrounded. The environment and human um, nature relationships are foregrounded in these in these texts.
0: Yeah, uh, I do have a follow up question to this, uh, and 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 you you've been speaking about this. Can you speak a little more about how do these na- narratives engage us differently as audiences? Right. Uh, in other words, like at sensory, emotional, and cognitive levels. Uh, For instance, do we experience films differently than we experience literatures? Like how is this like reception happening in different ways? And how does that, what does that tell us about genres? Well, thank you.
1: Um, I would say the, the reception of literary texts and films is both similar in some ways, but then there are also some obvious and important differences. So the similarities are in both cases. Um, if you follow Gallese the mirror neuron system is involved in the sense of we're doing in both cases this kind of embodied simulation that I have just described. So the interesting thing about this kind of FMRI research is that it has shown that, as I said earlier, certain areas in our brain light up when we also watch somebody else move but it also happens when we see an actor move in a film or for me always the most fascinating when we read about a character moving in a novel so we we map that onto our own body in its representation in our brain in the same way and so in that sense understanding an environment or human nature interaction in a novel and in a film is similar because similar things happen in our brains. That being said, you know that, you know, yourself from your own experience, of course, um, reading a novel, reading a text um, needs a lot more cognitive work because what do you have in front of you? Words on a page, right? So you have a a lot more to do. Richard Gehrig, a psychologist, Richard Gehrig, um, he, he talks about how you have to kind of breathe life into these characters using your own emotions. You you feel you fill characters um, and and environments. You bring them to life by drawing on your own experiences, your own emotions. That's something that the reader response theory and and other other work has been has known for a very long time. That the reader is co-creative. That that the reader plays about as much of a role in creating a, a story, a, a vivid story, than the writer. Um, so in that sense, there's more imaginary, imaginative work, perhaps, in reading because it's really just the text in front of you, and all the work of having like your own personal movie. Um, the the neurologist and um, Antonio Damasio he likens what happens in the human brain to a film like a private film your personal film when you read something and you imagine it um and so in that sense it's more cognitive work but then when you watch a film a lot of the same processes happen and what people sometimes underestimate is how much imagination you also need when watching a film because, yeah, of course, there's this whole visual world there for you, and there's you know the 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 auditory work world there for you. you you have sound, um you may have music, you have the dialogue, and of course, you see everything. So sometimes people think it's a lot more passive. you're doing a lot less to some degree, that's probably true, but the the kind of of gaps. Um, you know that you have in in a literary text um, that you fill in there, as reader response theory, reception theory, um, has argued. Um, you also have that in films. There's so much in films that's not there. You know when you cut, you know there's so many ellipses, so many things that aren't there where you actually still have to fill things in. Um, so you're still very active also in in a film. But a film can captivate your, you know, your attention in a different way. Um, cognitive, um, liter, um, cognitive film theorists have argued that, basically, when you're in your normal world your attention is very distributed. We, we, we constantly select, right? Otherwise, there would be total overload with all the things happening around us. So we have to focus on on something. Uh, and maybe we don't even see something else happening in our environment. And what films do, to some degree, is they structure our attention, they structure you know, what we focus on in any given moment, for example, there's a close-up, they cut, there's only, there's a selection, there's a frame, we don't see the entire world, we, we see what's important for this particular scene, and we might then see a close-up next to see the emotional reaction of, of an actor, of a character, um, and so it, it pre-focuses our attention in a certain way, a narrative, a literary text does that too, but in a different way, a narrative does it too, right? When, when you read something, it's also, um, when you read something, you then certain things are mentioned and certain things aren't mentioned. You know, if a room is described, certain things are there. Certain things, you don't know whether they are there, but you can still imagine a room. Um, and so they have different ways of engaging our ima- imagination and then also cueing emotions. For example, when we think about a film, Music, of course, is very important. The close-up that I just mentioned, um, um, you know, for empathetic responses, for example, uh, the close-up is really important. And so um, there are different ways in which um, films and narrative texts engages, but the underlying um, architectures are the same. The underlying functions are the same.
0: Thank you so much. So, uh, so uh, in your book, you draw significantly on studies from cognitive science, um, as you've already talked about, uh, and, and you draw them in thinking about questions of narrative, politics and environment. Can you tell us a little bit about this literary cognitive approach? what is new and novel about this approach uh, in literary studies today and and why must we kind of talk about it highlight its contributions
1: well i mean first of all it's it, it is not as new right um it is still perceived uh, as very new but i mean it has been around at least since the 1990s and it, it also has, um, you know, precursors that go much longer back in 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 history, way into the into the twentieth century, all the way back in film studies, for example, to the early twentieth century, with Hugo Münstermann. So it's it's uh, it is on the one hand um, relatively recent and still feels new, um, but I think in part that it is because um, th- there hasn't been that much. Interaction between the empirical study of literature, which I mentioned earlier, which is done by mostly by psychologists, and then literary studies, which is done by literary st- by humanists, right, who have been trained in that way. So I don't. I think it has been around for longer than many people realize, but kind of on like parallel tracks. There hasn't been that much um, interaction, um, and I think why it is um important to to bring in that work is because um i don't know at least for me personally it is helpful to get a better understanding of how our minds how our um, brains how our bodies interact with the narrative if we are, have questions about reception particularly so I'm not sure how important it is um, if, if you're not at all interested in this nexus between the text and the reader or maybe the text and the writer. That's also something that can be explored. But if you're interested in how texts of any kind, literary texts in your question, how they engage a reader, if that is a question you have, I think this kind of work can be insightful, you know, to give you a fuller understanding of that.
0: Thank you. Uh, I do again have another follow up for this. Uh, uh, so, it, in 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 your book, you've you've talked about the idea of embodied cognition, right? Uh, and and you also refer to this uh, the, the, this this scholarly approach of the four E's, right? Uh, the cognition being embodied embedded, inactive, and extended. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this approach and, and what it means for literary studies?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, earlier cognitive science, um, first wave cognitive science um, is often said to have treated the mind like a computer. No, so basically there was input and then there was processing and then there was output and embodied cognition is you know says this you know this is wrong but the, the, the mind the human mind is not a is not a computer you can't separate it from the body the, the body is a fundamental part of cognition how you know with our emotions with with everything that's happening in our body you know for for an emotional response you need the body as well um and the same is true for for um what we usually refer to as cognition because as antonio damasio and others have shown you know this this um the card split between the mind and the body can't really be sustained because you, you know, they, 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 um, they're interactive and they're dependent on one another. Um, but Dimasio also talks about how the body, how the mind and the body are not only connected in that way, but they also are embedded in an environment. And I think that's particularly interesting for, of course, ecocritics, because eco-critics tend to have such an, a focus on environments and the importance of environment. And so when you think about the mind and what's happening in the mind, needing the body, so this strong focus on embodiment that we now have in cognitive science, and then also in embeddedness in an environment, um, that was for me what I was really emphasizing in my book and really um, trying to show also how that is important in the texts um, that I'm looking at, how these characters um you know how um, how these how these texts also demonstrate that you know minds are embodied and embedded, and of course this is not only true for the characters' texts, but also for the reader who enact, who interacts with these texts. Um, when it comes to the, the second and the, uh, the, the third and the fourth E um, and active and extended, that is work that has been done um, to a large degree also by philosophers. Um, so I, am, I I do draw on that to some degree, especially with the, with the important work of Marco Caracciolo. He is really an expert in that um, much more than I am, because um, it, in, in activism really focuses on not only that the mind and the body are embedded in an environment, but that also mind is something that is a result of acting in that environment, of being in an interaction, right? That's why it's enacted as well. So it's not only there, but it also interacts with that environment. Um, And then the extended... um, so the fourth e um, extended cognition sometimes also referred to as distributed cognition is that the the mind is also not not only in the body or in a head or in a brain but it is actually distributed it's actually also outside um, um of the body and uh, so but as i said this is not something that i, I work with a lot and um most um most psychologists or cognitive scientists will not so much work with with um, that part of four E cognition, but it's a very important um, field. Um, as I said, Marco is um, is a really does doing brilliant work in in this field, um, but it is also a, a, a quickly growing field, and it has been picked up by um, other scholars. Erin James also in her more recent work, um, and and others, because. I think one of the reasons is it is very fascinating to look at that from an eco-critical or through an ecocritical lens, right? This idea that the environment and the interaction with an environment, and even that part of cognition actually happens outside the body, you know, that that is all, um, you know, of, of, of um, great interest to an ecocritic. So perhaps not um, as much my focus, but mm-hmm. I think very important.
0: Thank you. So now I want to shift our focus to something specific in your book. Uh, something that I myself as a as a scholar of empathy studies, is really invested in and I've, and, 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 and your book, uh, I've been like, I've researched myself and I've had my students read it because of this particular aspect of it. So, so uh, you, and uh, a central focus of your work is narrative empathy. Um, you see it as a lens to explore issues of postcolonial and environmental social justice in both literatures and films, right? So, so can you talk, a little more about your approach to uh, how, how you approach empathy in literary studies.
1: Yeah, so for for that part of my of my work, um, Susan Keene has been particularly important, as you as you know yourself, you know, also from from your own work, Susan Keene is uh, she wrote a very important book called Empathy and the Novel that was published in two thousand seven by Oxford University Press that has been extremely influential, and that is a really fascinating account of empathy in literary reading, um, also. Taking into account the author, you know, taking the account of a, of 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 how uh, empathy works in literary texts, um, in part also, like just in general, basically one part of her argument is without empathy we couldn't we couldn't understand we we wouldn't be able to engage with the narrative if we hadn't this capacity for empathy, and it is also important, of course, for the writer, you know, in order to come up with a, with a, characters for example with fictional characters so since i'm also a creative writer you know i can attest to that how important it is that you you're kind of inventing people and you you give them a whole emotional life how would you do that without a capacity you know to feel with others in this in in this case fictional others um and so keen's account is really really thorough and fascinating and she draws a lot on um existing empirical research as well so in psychology Um, and another part of 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 kane's book is also to look at the so-called empathy altruism you know thesis the the idea that reading a lot of fiction um will make people more compassionate for example more open to others this was also important for me in my first book on on cosmopolitanism on you know how um, American writers used literary texts in order in order to open up the minds of Americans to to others you know, to 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 non-Americans in this case um and so Keene is, is- um, both very much interested in, in this thesis um, as it has been forwarded for I mentioned her earlier um, philosophers like Martha Nussbaum but she's also critical you know, she also in that book already in 2007 says you know well the empirical research is you know scant and it has gotten better now I would say but still you know we, we don't have enough to to just prove oh you know reading literature will make you a better person there is research that shows that reading a lot of literature might make you, uh, or people who read a lot of literature, um, tend to score higher on, you know, on empathy. But then again, you don't know for sure whether they are more empathetic people who like to read more fiction, or whether people who read a lot of fiction, you know, have higher empathy. Um, so it, it's uh, it's it's complicated. But um, so 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 keen was very important for my own work and. I- was interested in um, using that, employing that in looking at narratives of environmental justice. So, in my text, I'm in my book, I'm um, especially in the third chapter. I'm really interested in um, how um, how writers use something that Keen has called strategic empathizing. So, if um, if a text invites you to Empathize with one character rather than another, which is pretty much what most texts do, usually with your protagonist and not with the antagonist, right? Um, but if that, if, if that is underpinned by political, you know, by by political views or political purpose, if the book have has a political dimension, which a lot of environmental texts do. Um, so I, I was looking at that specifically um, in texts that have this environmental justice dimension. And I was looking uh, in my book at how empathy is used strategically by a text like um, Percival Everett's Watershed, for example, um, and other texts in order to help readers understand what it means, what it is like. To be a victim of environmental injustice, for example, poisoned water supply, right? So, what what does it mean, and how a novel can use um, empathy strategically in the sense that it invites readers to empathize with, you know, with people that might not be like themselves, right? That may be very different from them. Um, but that are you know but who are, who are affected by an injustice and the text invites readers to feel along you know with the people who have been affected even if the reader herself is not, not affected by whatever is happening in the text so that's something that i was interested in in that chapter
0: particular thank you thank you uh i have a follow-up question to this uh, your response here as well uh and 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 this takes us to chapter four of your book. Uh, and and it is perhaps my favorite chapter of your book. Uh, and and, and uh, it is on something that you call like trans-species empathy, because I mean, I'm aware of empathy literature on empathy studies research, but what is often missing is how do we use the lens of empathy to understand our interactions with the non-human world and then and, and you um your research from chapter chapter four like expands on that. So so can you speak a little more about uh this trans species empathy? How is empathy for non-humans similar or different from empathy for humans? And how do these concerns ref- represent themselves in narratives, particularly the ones that you talk about in your book?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I should perhaps um, mention a differentiation that I make in, in chapter three that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is between the insider and the outsider perspective. I do that already in um, in talking about environmental justice narratives in the sense of focalization. So, You know, the the question that I asked there is, does it make a difference whether, as I explained earlier, you know, you're invited to empathize with um, with a a victim of environmental injustice um, directly or indirectly. So the novel that I mentioned, um, um, Watershed by Percival Everett, is an example of a text that does so. Indirectly, because our main character in this case is, is a hydrologist, a scientist, African American, who, um, who, on the one hand, actually um, doesn't, you know, say he doesn't care about race, he doesn't care about um, the political discourse around race, and then he is kind of totally drawn into it in the, in the course of the novel, because this character starts empathizing almost against his will he gets involved in the in the environmental justice struggle of a group of native americans so a different you know even though he rejects all that at the beginning but then he stands in solidarity and actually risks his own life in order to help them and so that would be an example of a narrative where we are um, approaching somebody who is affected via a character who is not personally affected but who starts to care And we are invited to care along with that protagonist. There are other novels like um, Elena Maria Veramontes, Under the Feet of Jesus, where the protagonist is somebody who is affected. In this case, they are migrant workers, Mexican migrant workers in California. Um, And so we are directly invited to empathize with somebody who is affected, you know, when when, the character, main character Estrella, is suffering in the fields, you know, because it's incredibly hot, and she has to do such hard work, and she's only a teenager. But um, in uh, chapter four, then, when I look at animal, you know, um, animal narratives and non-trans um, species empathy, as you mentioned, then I ask, okay, so what happens if that if the the object of empathy is actually non-human, because that might be relatively uncomplicated in the, in the case of outsider, an outsider perspective. For example, when, uh, when one of the texts I discuss in that chapter is Michael Apted's film Gorillas and the Mist. And um, so if you don't are not in that film you're never inside the mind of a mountain gorilla, you know you are actually invited to care for the gorillas directly, but also via, you know, via the human characters who care for those animals and who want to save them. But what happens with the insider perspective? Because with an insider perspective, you're suddenly invited to care directly um, in the sense of being inside of the animal's mind. And that then raises the question of anthropomorphism, which has been discussed very critically by eco critics, uh, for 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 very good reasons, because the question then is: so who writes this narrative that that you know purports to give us the perspective of an animal, be it a dog, be it a dolphin, whatever it is, right? Being bumpy. Um so then the question is: how do you represent that mind in a way that invites empathy? Do you do so by making it think and feel like a human so that would be anthropomorphism or is it actually possible as um cognitive ethologists so those are um, researchers who study animal minds that animals in fact do have emotions right and so when they suffer in a text you are able to suffer along with those animals so it's not necessary to make them human-like, right, so that you can feel along with them, but you are actually able to feel along with them too. If it, if you just step back for a second and you don't think about a narrative, but more directly, let's say you have a dog and your dog is not doing well and, you know, you're suffering because along with your dog, you're like, you, you feel bad for the dog, but you are also empathizing with the dog. And then somebody could tell you, well, don't humanize your dog. He's not feeling what you think he's feeling, right? He's not because he's a dog. Um, And so that would be somebody who says, well, you're anthropomorphizing the dog. Um, And somebody else might say, well, no, you're recognizing the emotions of the dog correctly. You're able to feel trans-species empathy to, to correctly interpret, understand the emotions of the dog. And in this case, suffer along with the dog rather than just pitying the dog um even though you might also feel compassion um and and so this is something that I look at in this in this chapter and I'm and one of the arguments I make there that of course you can't help when you write a narrative about this but to use anthropomorphism to some degree because the writer is human and you know the the animal, is, they're writing about is not. And so if they're writing for, you know, the animal mind, they're going to use inevitably some anthropomorphism, even if they don't wanna do it, if, even if they don't wanna make it human-like, but it is you know, the limitations of our own minds. We can't jump out of our own minds. And so I ask, among other things, the question whether that must be a problem necessarily. So if it's done for these strategic reasons that I mentioned earlier, um, citing Susan Keene, you know, because of, let's say some Disney films like Bambi was very successful, for example, in getting people concerned, or Black Beauty was a text that was very successful in getting people concerned about animal welfare. So I, I just try to both analyze it, but then also um, maybe shed a bit of a different light on questions of anthropomorphism, for example.
0: Thank you so much. This was so helpful. Uh, So uh, we will round up this interview with a final question, which is a little more general in nature. So I mean, as we know, like humanities and literary studies today is globally, like in threat, right? I mean, humanities programs, literature programs are being slashed out from universities uh, uh, scholars of humanities and literary studies and public intellectuals who have humanistic leanings are being silenced everywhere right so keeping in these keeping these troubling like trends in mind can you talk about how does your book your research in general advocate for the humanities and literary studies as a discipline. Why must we preserve it? Why must we protect it? And why must we defend it?
1: Well, yeah. First of all, I think I mean you're right. Um, there there is a almost an assault on on the humanities going on. Definitely in the, I know about it in the United States, but also in in Europe and and elsewhere. It's always the question i guess about you know so what how is it relevant for society how is this how is it relevant to to study literature and yes, one question one answer that we always give in as human as literary scholars as humanity scholars is well one thing we teach is critical thinking right one thing we do is helping people you know learn about new perspectives and embody and feel you know other people's perspective and think about all that in in a in a critical light and that is in part what literature can do so i think part of what what my work can perhaps contribute to that is um highlight the importance of narrative in in human understanding um and especially obviously when it comes to to Environmental issues, um, such as you know the cultural um, the, the cultural dialogue uh, around climate change, would be an obvious example because you know in the in recent years people are taking that more and more seriously. And not only that, they are more and more looking at the role of narrative and storytelling in how people process that and then also respond to it and so since completing my book i think that is something where um where i was was you know interested to 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 learn that that seems to be interesting beyond literary studies beyond the humanities that there you know that um, there's a, a relevance in looking at the role of storytelling in human behavior in how we deal with environmental crisis how we um, treat each other how we treat the non-human um, and so I think I perhaps I was able to contribute um, a little bit to that and also to, more interdisciplinary work, I think. in 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 recent years, um, I've also um, made a step toward working even more interdisciplinarily, in the sense of also doing empirical eco criticism, collaborating in projects of empirical eco criticism, which means really looking at reception. So now, my what my book is doing is, it looks at the structure of narratives. It's a it's a narratological book that looks at how readers are invited to engage and, you know, and uh, engage effectively and cognitively with these texts. But in the end, what I do in the book, I can't help but doing is I speculate what the actual effects are on readers. And so I say that in the afterword of my book, that I think what we should be doing in addition to, you know, this kind of theoretical and conceptual work and analytical work is also, Looking more empirically at how what people are actually then doing with it, right? How what they are actually taking away from a narrative, and that seems to be um, something that you know that is has um, is interesting out also outside of of literary studies to to people working in the sciences and um, and even policymakers have been invited to speak, you know, to policymakers and others about that particular aspect. So I think it maybe can contribute a little bit um to demonstrating that that narratives and storytelling and the study of that you know is important and has something to say beyond just you know analyzing a novel because novels or or films are really just part of a much larger human discourse uh, you know, around what it means to be human and what it means you know to be um in this world and so i think It can perhaps contribute, you know, a tiny little piece to to this much larger discourse.
0: Thank you so much, Alexa. This was wonderful. Uh, I know, like me, many others who care about the society, who care about literatures, who care about the environment are reading your works and finding them to be invaluable. But if there are others who have not looked at your work so far, I hope this interview would give them so many compelling reasons to go check your work out on these so many different important issues. So I really thank you for agreeing to come here and talk about your book with me.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it.
0: It was a pleasure.